Hey, folks, welcome back to the show. Today, we are wrapping up our four part mini series on wildland fire and forestry with Dr. David Godwin, PhD. Now, if his name sounds familiar, it's because we began the mini series with his brother, Dr. Daniel Godwin. So, I want to give a final thanks to our sponsor of this mini series, Limmer Boot Company. Limmer believes in the power of growing communities and relationships in the outdoors, and they know that the moments of introspection and self-reliance learned there can transform any individual. So if you're looking for a last pair of hiking boots, check out LimmerBoots.com to learn more. Now, like many, David was so impacted by his time on staff as a ranger that upon returning home to college, he changed his major to focus on natural resources. Today, David is the director of the Southern Fire Exchange Program with the University of Florida School of Forest, Fisheries, and Geomatics. The Southern Fire Exchange is part of the larger Fire Science Exchange Network, which exists to accelerate awareness, understanding, adoption, and implementation of readily available wildland fire science information. In 2014, David was thrilled to return as a visiting forester, where he shared his passion for and told the story of fire. He also utilized the site-specific location overlooking Cedar Reservoir to discuss the impacts of fire on natural resources such as water. As they say in the West, whiskeys for drinking, waters for fighting over. David also shares his experience at Black Lake, New Mexico, where in 2013 he assisted in a prescribed fire training exchange, also known as TREX. Lastly, David shares some great stories from his time on staff. Today, David remains active in scouting, and ironically, he learned of the Zastro cabin being lost to the Cook's Peak Fire while enrolled in a wood badge course in his home state of Florida. I want to thank everyone who contributed to this feature series, and especially to those working around the clock to protect lives and structures during the Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon, and Cook's Peak fires. I apologize if I ca- if I call you Daniel. Do you have other siblings with D names? No, it's just the two of us. We're, we're the only two. So I have three sisters and we're all C names. No, so, right. yeah. So it's, I'm used to it too. Should we just kick it off? Sure. Are you good with that? Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm here today with Dr. David Godwin. You have a PhD in fire science and forest resources, I believe. Is that correct? Yep. That's it. Okay. It's a mouthful, but that's it. David, you are joining the show today to end our mini series about wildland fire and forestry management. Um, and your brother, Daniel, who also has a PhD in this topic, he was the one who helped us kick off the mini series. So thank you for joining the show and helping us have it come full circle. You're coming from Tallahassee, Florida. I'm in Iowa. We've never met, but it's really fun to do this uh, podcast for these reasons because. There's this Philmont connection, of course, and it just is kind of an instant friendship, if you will, or an instant common ground. So as we know, uh, there was the Cook's Peak Fire, which I believe is still technically burning. Um, Last I heard it was 97% contained. And there's also now the Hermit's Peak slash Calf Canyon Fire that's kind of threatening the area. So fire season is not over. It's never really over as I've understood it throughout educating myself during this fire series. So yeah, tell us a little bit, David, about what you do today. um, And then we can also chat about your Philmont experience. I am the director of a program called the Southern Fire Exchange. I work for the University of Florida, which is based in Gainesville, but I'm up here in Tallahassee. Uh, And the Southern Fire Exchange is a collaborative that is run by the University of Florida, uh, Tall Timbers Research Station, which is in Tallahassee, uh, NC State University, and the U.S. Forest Service Southern Research Station. So it's a whole bunch of organizations with really long names. Uh, But we are a program that uh, across all those different organizations works to connect 
people who are fire managers. Um, and that could be a fire manager uh, who uh, works for a state agency or a federal agency. Uh, or it could be a private landowner or a private practitioner who works in either prescribed fire or wildfire uh, in the southeastern U.S. So really, we're focused on this region. And we work to try and connect those folks with uh, relevant science and tools and information uh, related to prescribed fire and wildland fire. Um, we're part, the Southern Fire Exchange is part of a nationwide network of what are called fire science exchanges. And so every part of the U.S., uh, including Alaska and Hawaii, uh, have a fire science exchange, which is a, a group just like I help run in the Southeast uh, that tries to work with the managers and the fire scientists and their particular region to kind of bridge that gap, uh, very much like um, cooperative extension agents do for land-grant universities, if you're familiar with that system. Uh, but try and get uh, research and science information out of publications and into the hands of practitioners and decision makers uh, so, they, so that they can be more effective at their day-to-day -day jobs. So I help to, uh, to run the one for the Southeastern U.S., and we have a small staff uh, with folks at each of those uh, organizations that I listed, and we put together events and resources and programs uh, that try and bridge that gap throughout the year. Awesome. So the the region that uh, Philmont would be in, I believe, is called the Southwest region, and I think it's all of Arizona, all of New Mexico, parts of Texas and Utah, if I looked at the map right. Yeah, that sounds right. You, you did your homework. Yeah. <laughs> So that is a smaller region compared to yours. I think you had maybe 10 states in, in that um, southern region that you work in. So, yeah, it's a really cool program. I've been just kind of deep diving on, on the website today and leading up to this. And you are the director for your region. And I believe it also mentioned that you're also a co-principal investigator. What part? What does that mean? <laughs> uh, that means I hope to write the grant. Uh, so we're funded by our federal grant uh, from a program called the Joint Fire Science Program. And uh, it's a really long name, but we all call it JFSP for short. And JFSP uh, is funded by Congress. And uh, every year they get a little bit of money from the Forest Service, U.S. Forest Service, and a little bit of money from the Department of Interior. And they use that money to do really two things. Uh, one, they fund the Fire Science Exchange Network. So they put out grants that all of our different exchanges competitively um, compete for uh, to get our, our funding to run our programs. And then the JFSP also funds fire science research uh, for the country. And so people, researchers, scientists uh, who work uh, for universities or nonprofits uh, or even scientists who work for the government, like who work at the U.S. Forest Service research stations around the country, or with the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, they're scientists who are interested in doing applied fire science research projects, uh, will write proposals and compete for funding from JFSP to, to do projects of all different sorts and all over the, all over the country. Um, but so I am a co-PI, which means I help to write our grant uh, and all of our different exchanges around the country have, have teams of, of staff um, who help with the day-to-day -day operations, uh, faculty and researcher PIs um, who have different levels of involvement, but are all, um, if you're a PI, you're involved in, in, in writing the grant proposal um, and, and managing the grant and, and funding uh, throughout the course of the period. Okay, awesome. I didn't know if you were like investigating things um, <laughs> like uh, behind the scenes with that title, but that's very important work. And the whole the whole exchange is incredible work. And is it so is this program something that a private place like Philmont could utilize the services of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the uh, it's the, the Southwest Fire Science Consortium. Um, that's the name of the exchange um, that Philmont really kind of falls within. And, and you could say they're also a little bit of on the boundary between Southwest Fire Science Consortium um, and and another exchange that's just up the road uh, based in Fort Collins that that's really tends to span uh, Colorado and, and the Front Range goes up to the Black Hills a bit. Um, but 
folks like organizations like Philmont um, partner with exchanges in different ways. Um, they may send their staff um, to workshops and field events uh, so that they can learn um, on some of the latest uh, fire science research findings that are relevant to their management challenges. Uh, they might host a workshop or a field tour. Um, you know, the, I haven't spoken with anybody at Philmont about it, but, you know, there are so many fires going on uh, in, in New Mexico right now uh, that I wouldn't be surprised if in the future that those fires will be, the, you know, hosting uh, field workshops where scientists and managers, managers will come together uh, to have conversations, to exchange information, to look at conditions on the ground, uh, to kind of interpret what's going on. Uh, and to learn from each other so that they can then put that information into the practice in the future as they move forward. So places like Philmont uh, in the Southwest and, and then organizations across the Southeast, we work, work with um, folks like the Nature Conservancy uh, groups who in our region are really uh, involved in longleaf pine restoration across the region. Um, we have worked with everybody from various state agencies uh, to put together events to um, nonprofits, large ones like the Nature Conservancy, smaller local nonprofits, um, and then private organizations. So when it comes to fire, um, and I think you probably got this uh, on some of your previous podcast conversations with with Daniel and Zach and Mary, you know, fire is one of those things that um, it's not really interested in who owns the land or what the boundaries are, all those kinds of things. Like the fire just is, right? And so when we start having conversations and working with partners on um, improving fire management decisions and land management decisions, all these things are all tied together. It's going to, and it, it takes involvement and engagement from all different groups um, because everybody's going to be affected by it at some, some, some level or another. Yeah. It's got to be a collaboration. I like how you put that. Like the fire doesn't really care who owns what. So Thank you for kind of walking us through that. I asked your brother this question, so I'll ask you too. Was there a moment where you fell in love with fire ecology and forestry and knew you wanted to study this? Yeah, that's a that's a cool question. Um, you know, I <laughs> I have to say I learned stuff from Daniel's podcast. That like, I was like, oh, well, I didn't know that. Uh, so it's pretty cool to to hear listen to your brother's <laughs> uh, podcast conversation. Be like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's kind of a like two part question um, or two part answer. I'll say that. So uh, I I went to Philmont. Um, I worked on staff in two thousand two. I was a ranger, and uh, when I went to Philmont, um, I was I don't remember what year I was in school. I think I was a junior uh, in undergrad at Florida State University, and maybe I was a sophomore, but I w- I was planning to go into advertising and communications. And after a summer at Philmont, I came home and was like, I'm not going to do that. I want to do something with natural resources. I want to do something where I'm dealing with the environment and going to focus my energies on outside things, right? I'm probably like one of a gazillion staff members or pers- people who've been to Philmont and came home and changed their major. Uh, but I'm joining the club. Uh, so I came home and I changed at, at, at Florida state. We didn't have a, uh, a forestry program or a wildlife program, but we did have geography and I loved maps, um, and GIS and that sort of thing. So I changed my major to geography and stuck with that and graduated with a geography and history degree. A few years later, I, uh, got a job working, uh, in outdoor recreation, uh, with our state wildlife fish and wildlife agency in Florida. And I worked in a position um, developing trails and uh, non-consumptive outdoor recreation opportunities on a wildlife management area network that was across the state of Florida that was over a million acres. And uh, we got to go visit some of these just amazing properties all over the state uh, and got paid to do it. It was a wonderful job. I had super great people to work with. Um, Coming out of a few years out of Philmont, it was a, you know, the things that I had learned and experienced in Philmont really set me up to go into that job thinking about um, how people could learn from natural areas and experience natural areas in Florida, uh, come away with positive experiences. And we were developing paddling trails and we were developing hiking trails and wildlife viewing stands and figuring out where to put interpretive signs, um, all just ways to connect with people. 
on these uh, managed properties across the state. And after doing that for a little over two years, I, I knew that if I wanted to move up in the agency or move up in general, I needed to have a graduate degree. And so I knew I needed to go back to school and do something to, to be able to move up and, and, and have more responsibilities and make more money and all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, and I, I learned along the way in visiting these properties and talking with the biologists and the land managers, the people in charge tasked with stewarding these lands in Florida that like the, the one tool that they had was fire and that like fire was the really the ultimate stewardship tool. It was the most efficient. It was the most powerful. It was the most, most impactful um, way that these land managers and these wildlife biologists had for um, restoring and managing these uh, protected public lands. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to work in this field, if I'm going to work on these lands, I need to know more about this tool. I need to know more about, you know, how this process of fire works on the landscape um, and why we use it and how we use it. And with only an undergraduate degree, I felt like I didn't know anything. You know, I knew enough to know that I didn't know anything. I can say, I feel like after a gazillion years of graduate school afterwards, I still came away, came away with a feeling of like, <laughs> we don't know anything. There's so much to know, you know? Uh, I feel like that's the one thing I came up with. One of the things I came up with grad school was like, there's so much you don't know. Um, it's just mind boggling. But I knew that fire was something I wanted to learn more about. Um, and so I left my position at FWC uh, to take a research assistantship to, to start a master's at the University of Florida in the School of Forestry. And that was to, it was an opportunity to work with a new professor there um, who was starting up a fire science lab. And it was an opportunity to work with her um, on some research projects um, to really dive right into uh, fire science and fire ecology in Florida. And um, so that's, that's how I got into it. I, I always wanted to go back to school. I have a I have a degree in history, just a bachelor's in history, and I always wanted to go back to school. Um, I just love learning. You know, people are always like, I'm a lifetime learner, but it's so true. Like when you start to go down a rabbit hole or really commit yourself to something, it's incredible how it's um, just so expansive, right? And then you meet someone else who's researching some like minutia about some larger, you know, field. And it's just, there's all these paths and just kind of this like rooting system that kind of like I picture it going out and there's always more to learn. So I love that. Um, I'm glad you followed your gut on that and uh, went for it because it seems like you're passionate about it, obviously, and it's it's led to a really good career. So was it during your time getting your master's that you were a visiting forester at Philmont or was that later? Uh, that was later. So I had already... I was a visiting force. I had to go back and look at my notes and make sure like, what year was that? Sure. Uh, yeah. I think yeah, it was, I was 14. I think yeah, 2014. So 2014, I had already finished my PhD. Um, and I, I came out for a week, uh, as a visiting forester and I had only learned about it. I guess that year, that was the first time I'd heard about it. And I thought like, holy cow, that sounds awesome. It sounded so cool. It sounded like just a tremendous opportunity. And, uh, yeah, you know, talked to my wife. I was like, "Hey, can I go?" And basically, like, "Yeah, you can go," because uh, we had little <laughs> kids at home, and uh, yeah, and and put together the application and sent off to Mary, you know, and like Mary Stuver, and found out that I got accepted. I was like, yeah. I, was, I was stoked, so excited. I mean, to go back to Philmont, you know, that was 2014. I hadn't like I was in you know, on staff as a ranger in 2002. I'd been out there the year before on OE Trail Crew in, in 2001, so it'd been been a long time since been coming out there. And so I was uh, tremendously excited to be able to do that. Yeah. So that program for listeners who don't know, I believe uh, first launched in 2010 with the help of Mary Stuver and many others to get that program off the ground. Um, and it's really meant to engage scouts and participants in sustainable forestry and forest stewardship, as I understand it. The demonstration forest is you know, right by Cedar Reservoir. And 
the visiting foresters kind of base camp and house themselves with the hunting lodge staff. And I think that's still how it's run. And I was under the impression that each different visiting forester had, how do I want to say this? They were able to tailor kind of what they taught or they were able to to bring their own focus to the table while they were in that volunteer role as a visiting forester. So I'm just curious what like what was your focus or what was something you really liked teaching to the the scouts and participants as they came through? Well, probably not too too surprisingly, I came at it with a with a fire focus. <laughs> um, it was interesting. Uh, so I guess most weeks they have two uh, foresters, at least at that time. Um, there were two foresters per week and, uh, my week I was, for whatever reason, I was the only one. So it was just me, uh, which made coming up with my own material pretty easy because I didn't have to like argue with anybody about what we were going to talk about. I just did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and you know, I, I'm trying to remember, but I'm pretty sure that, that Mary Stewart sent me like a, an email with a whole bunch of links. And I think there were some attachments kind of thing with like, here's some here's some stuff that people have talked about before. Here's some topics that, that VFs have covered. You know, here are some things that you might want to, you might want to talk about. I think she had some links to some publications and that sort of thing. So being a nerd, I, you know, I read a bunch of papers <laughs> and, uh, and found some forest service research publications and syntheses and that sort of thing. And uh, probably put way too much, you know, prep work into it, but I'm going to, I was going to talk about fire. And I imagine there are other foresters who come and take it more of a, a commercial or industrial type perspective based on their careers and, and that sort of thing. And that's totally natural. Um, but I came up, I came to it with my passions and enthusiasms for, for fire and for telling the story of fire. And, you know, there, <laughs> I always kind of wondered, there was no evaluation of the crews like from them really as to like, what did they think of Godwin's dog and pony show up there? And cause it, by the end of the week, it felt like it was truly like a dance. Like I'm up here, like arms waving, like running around, like enthusiastically, like some crazed woodsy Bill Nye talking about fuels and, you know, ladder fuels and, Oh, the fire's over here and pointing over here. You know, you, you, at the end of the week, you've, you've done it a gazillion times and you've kind of like refined it and like sort of perfected your little 20 minute pitch or whatever it is. And, uh, at the end of the week, I felt pretty good about it, you know, because you've done it so many times and I'm excited to talk about this stuff to a captive audience of cold, tired scouts who just want a place to sit down. But yeah, totally talked about fire. And, and you know, it was a blast because uh, the crews that came through had, they had so many different uh, perspectives and backgrounds based on where they came from. You know, we had crews that came came through over the course of the week who were from the Southwest or from the West. A lot of them had, like they had experiences with fire. Some of them had experiences with wildfires in their town, right? So they come with really, um, they don't necessarily come with a more solid understanding of the fundamentals of what's going on out there in the landscape that they're hiking through, but they certainly come with perspectives on, on like real like feelings about what these processes can mean in their lives. And then we had, there was one crew, uh, they were from Europe and there were folks from England. Um, and that was really exciting because they had really, some of them really had no idea, you know, what kind of landscape they were hiking through. And of course this was in 2014. So this is before the U Park fire. Yeah. At the end of the week, I think I totaled up, it was like 800 people or something like that that I had spoken with. It was, a, it was so much fun. It felt like you could, you had a chance to be like a, a fire evangelist up there and just like talk about like this is why this is important and that location if listeners haven't been there like the at the pavilion right above cedo reservoir and they had the demonstration forest nearby where there was a variety of different um you know timber harvests that they were trying to demonstrate and we had some crews who needed to do uh service projects and have them go through and um try and cut some ladder fuels and that sort of thing but the demonstration forest being perched right above Cedo Reservoir um, was really a powerful opportunity to talk about, you know, why, why we care about fire and why, you know, if all this stuff gets burned up, you know, why does this matter? And so some, I, I would use a phrase, you know, in the West, they used to say that um, 
whiskey's for drinking, but water's for fighting over. And like some of the people are like, oh, yeah, I've seen an old West movie or whatever. But like, it's a real thing, right? And so we would be right here above Cedar Reservoir and we talk about like, you know, if all these forests burn off, what holds that soil in place when it rains? And like, ah, okay. And some of them have been hiking in the rain that day. You know, it's, I was there and it was solidly monsoon season. And some of them would get there and they're like, they've been slogging through those wet, muddy trails and they know what erosion looks like. And they know what, what happens when it rains in the hillside. We talk about like, okay, you see that reservoir over there? It's not just a pond full of fish. It's not just a pretty place. Like it's a reservoir with water to drink. And you say, all right, well, that's a water supply for people to drink. And I think I said it was the water supply for Cimarron, but I can't remember exactly off the top of my head right now. But, um, you know, this is critically important. If we don't have water, you you can't live here. People can't survive in this landscape. And so it was a, you know, the, the location of that visiting of that demonstration forest and that pavilion right there, you know, there were so many beautiful opportunities to link together forest management, you know, past, present, future concepts and fire ecology and hydrology and just like the, 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 the situation of living in the West all in one place in a crazy 20 minute David running around the forest, pointing things out and trying to make <laughs> concepts work. Uh, it was, it was awesome. It was really, really fun for me. And, and it seemed like coming away with, with it, that, that by and large crews, um, I think they learned something. They at least tolerated me. Um, and then I would take their picture at the end. They were very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love it. Do you recall a favorite like prop or tool that you would use in the demonstration forest or something you brought? There were some tree cookies. So like uh, if you're not familiar with what a tree cookie is, it's not like a like a cookie monster sort of thing. It's 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 where you, you, you cut a section of a, a mature tree near the base and all the way through, usually sometimes it's just a wedge. Uh, and, and then these had been uh, sanded in fine grit sandpaper. So you could really discern, you could really see the rings, right? The annual growth rings. And these tree cookie samples also had fire scars in them. And, and that's where a living tree experiences a fire where it's growing. And it injures the bark of the tree. And the tree continues to grow it heals over that bit of damaged damaged tree and it'll continue to grow and it'll heal it over but where it's healed over it it permanently and sometimes it'll leave a mark um, in those annual rings and in some cases where the fire regime uh, hasn't been interrupted or it has been um, or it has persisted for whatever reason a tree uh, can become a historical record of fires on a landscape. Um, I think Mary Stuver talked about this in, in her podcast, but there were some of these uh, samples right there at the, at the pavilion. And so, you know, we'd pull these out and they had, had dates on them, right? And so through a lot of um, field work and research, you can basically f- figure out when fires happened over the course of time, going back hundreds of years for a site. And then looking at the number of rings between the fire scars, you can figure out the number of years between fires. If you have enough samples um, across a space um, over enough years, you can figure out the average number of years per fire over a different period of time. Dendrochronology is the term, right? Uh, Dendros and trees, chronology is in time. I, I am not a dendrochronologist by trade. I'm a dendrochronologist groupie. Uh, the people who do that work are just, they're like, to me, they're like the Indiana Jones of fire science and fire history. They go out and they find these cool trees in old places and they cut samples of them. And then they take them back to the lab and they have poor grad students polish them and sand them forever and ever and ever. And then the poor grad students look at them through <laughs> microscopes and go blind. Uh, but they come up with some of the most amazing information that informs us about you know, what happened on a landscape. Um, in terms of its fire history. And it, for those of us who are interested in the kind of thing, it's like, it's a 
it's worth more than gold. It's amazing information about the history of fire on a site. And it helps us to put together a concept in our head as to like, when should this burn? When did this burn? Right? How did this burn? Um, it can help inform those kind of questions. And it also helps us to understand things about climate, rainfall, and all that kind of stuff. It's super cool stuff. But anyways, it was uh, to have that as a prop, to have those tree um, cookies at the at the demonstration forest. And I can't remember exactly where they were from. They were from northern New Mexico, a site not too far away. And I'm sure Mary will, Mary Stewart will know. But it really wasn't too far away. And it was from a, a similar ponderosa pine ecosystem. And so it, it was a, a prop that allowed us to kind of show real fire history and let the kids see it in their hands and hold it and count those rings and, and get an understanding of, of when um, and how often fires occurred in it. And sometimes you have those um, cookies and, and you can see, I think we had this on those that we had at the pavilion. I can't remember exactly, but some of them you can see where like human settlement patterns and management regimes have altered fire history. And then you can see when railroads come in, um, or when grazing would come in and interrupt that fire regime and reduce the number of fires in the landscape. And you see when the railroads can sometimes come in and bring more fires. But it's, 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 it was an opportunity to talk about all those concepts by just holding a piece of wood in your hand that had these little black marks on it. That's incredible. It makes me, I was going to ask you while you were describing that. Um, well, first I was going to say, like, was that cookie from specifically Philmont? And you kind of answered that question, no. But yeah. I wonder when was the last time that area of Philmont did burn? It'd be cool to look at a ring and try to see that. Probably a long time ago. <laughs> Do you have any future hopes for the Visiting Forester program? Um, you know, in my mind, it'd be cool to, this is just from like an outsider's perspective, it'd be cool to have multiple Visiting Forester sites across Philmont, you know, different demonstration forests, or even to have something eventually maybe in a burn area um, once it is safe to, you know, teach and be in that area. But yeah, what are your thoughts going forward? Something that you'd hope for the future of that program? You know, if you could find enough people to staff it, I think that the opportunity, if you find the right people to staff it, the opportunity to talk about these concepts is is there and you know the fires they don't make the discussion about forestry any less relevant it makes it all the more pressing right and it makes the concepts some of the things that i was talking about which you know my arm waving dog and pony to pony show about you know watersheds and all that stuff you don't have to use your imagination to think and see these concepts in action and so you had Daniel on the show um, a couple episodes ago, and, and you know the, the issues of fire in the West and across the country and across the world um, are not going away, and um, fire management challenges are are not getting they're not going to be any easier. Fire management is not going to be any, any easier uh, in in any time soon, and so having these demonstration forests having foresters and fire ecologists and any kind of natural resource professional who can, um, even if they're just engaging with a crew for just, you know, 15 minutes, that might be an opportunity to connect with an adult or a scout who, you know, they may be the next leader to help address these questions we need folks who are passionate and excited about these, about all these topics to help us solve challenges in the future. Right. Um, so yeah. what better landscape to talk about what it looks like now and how do we deal with these problems? What do we know? And what are some of the things we don't know yet? And we need ideas and we need leaders. And so Philmont is a good place for sharing ideas and um, shaping leaders. If we can get more folks out there to help talk about this, let's do it. Speaking of different fires, obviously, you know, we kind of mentioned before the Cook's Peak Fire and then that um, Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak Fire. 
I, I just saw some photos today that people post, posted. Yes. Base camp is kind of engulfed in, or not engulfed, but there's like, you know, all this dark, clouded, smoky sky and ash falling. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's it, the fire weather uh, has not given much of a break. Um, so I, the Southwest is in a really, particularly New Mexico, uh, is in a really rough uh, fire year, uh, at least going into it this spring. And yeah, it's tough. Uh, I was watching a presentation by a gentleman who works for the Forest Service out of Missoula, and he, he's a range guy. He's not even a fire guy, but he's a range guy who dabbles in fire. Um, and pretty early in the season, um, he was um, prognosticating that there would be a really active uh, fire season in New Mexico this year. And it was the, the intersection of a wide range of factors, including drought, but also um, fire history or, or lack thereof in many cases, um, but also uh, a really productive year for the range, the range grasses going into it. So there were ample fine fuels. Uh, so that's a long way of saying like, it's, it's been tough. It was absolutely, um, you know, terrifying watching uh, Cook's Peak rolling up towards uh, Philmont over the past few weeks. and and uh, hard to like not try and watch it play by play from across the country. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I don't second guess or make any management judgments about the folks who are on the ground and, and work in it. Uh, but looking at the forecast and looking at the fuels and looking at what the fire is doing, golly, it's been pretty uh, scary to watch some of that stuff on some of those days with the fire weather, just really bananas. Some of those national weather service fire weather forecasts that were coming out, on the days that uh, Cook's Peak made their big run, made the big runs uh, up towards Philmont, it was like looking at that, like, golly, you know, these are the kind of conditions. And, and uh, you know, Daniel and, and Zach talked about it. Like when you have fire weather conditions like that, there's really your options to do anything are, are really minimal. Um, so it was terrifying to watch Cook's Peak roll up there. Uh, in a way, I'm, I'm super thankful and glad and just, uh, I feel like Philmont fared amazingly well. You know, the season's not over. Uh, the monsoonal rains can't get here soon enough, but we're not there yet. Uh, looking at Hermit's Peak, uh, Calf Canyon, which they kind of rolled together as two as the two fires merged, a uh, little bit to the southwest of Philmont and Angel Fire. Uh, I know folks looking at it today, folks in the Angel Fire area are, are getting pretty nervous about that fire moving. And the forecast for the relative humidity staying low and the winds staying like New Mexico winds do um, is, is it's not looking good. In a way, uh, you know, just looking at the map from where I sit, having all that black um, from uh, Cook's Peak uh, on the south side of Philmont with another fire coming up from uh, the south uh, makes me feel a little bit better because, you know, if, if it's already black, uh, usually doesn't carry fire too well again, at least in the short term. Uh, so you know we'll have to see what happens, but um, certainly thinking about the folks in Angel Fire and Black Lake into the south and keeping fingers crossed is um, is that weather forecast is still looking pretty pretty dicey. Yeah, I agree. Thinking about everybody out there. Um, okay, you mentioned Black Lake, so now I have to ask because a lot of people have brought up. Black Lake to me in relation to Philmont. Was there a prescribed burnout there that Philmont helped with or what went down there? I've been to one prescribed fire on Black Lake and I think that was the first one. And then, well, on this particular piece of ground, I think that you're referring to. Uh, and then there were, I think they've done at least partners involved and others uh, have continued to burn it. Uh, maybe two or three times portions of that unit, two or three times since, since I was out there. The, the event that brought me out there was, was called a prescribed fire training exchange. Treks, they call it. And uh, a prescribed fire training exchange is something that was kind of co-created by the nature conservancy and some of their partners with an organization called the fire learning network. And uh, that event was, you know, co-hosted by those folks as well 
uh, as I think New Mexico State lands, as well as uh, the Forest Stewards Guild, which I think you've heard uh, mentioned on some of the previous episodes, uh, and some and some other partners um, from local volunteer fire department uh, in the area. Uh, anyways, the prescribed fire cha- training exchange is are, are events that move around the country. So uh, they're designed to bring in local partners and also outside um, prescribed fire practitioners from around the country onto a site, a particular piece of land, uh, to collaboratively work together to, to conduct uh, a series of prescribed fires. Um, and it really has a couple of different uh, goals. Uh, one is to get fire on the ground, good fire, prescribed fire. So that's one of them. Uh, two is to increase the capacity of local partners to work together to do their own prescribed fires in the future. So it's, it's about building local capacity. It's also about building national capacity of people who come in from all over the country to uh, work together, uh, to work on their task books, and to just become more familiar uh, and capable uh, with prescribed fire. Um, so I went to the Black Lake uh, prescribed fire training exchange, uh, and I think it was 2013. Um, and, uh, we burned, I honestly don't remember how many acres, uh, but we got fire on the ground. It was in the Black Lake area, which is, you know, if you're not familiar, uh, kind of around the corner from Philmont on the West side, a little bit South of, uh, Angel Fire area. And it, it certainly increased local capacity in a way that brought those partners together, uh, in the region to do fires. And clearly it was, uh, successful to that extent because the, the Black Lake prescribed burns had then been, um, replicated again. Uh, like I said, I think at least two or three more times. Um, and you know, for a lot of areas, and this is not just unique to the West, you know, I come from the South where there, there's more prescribed fire used than really anywhere else in the country. And um, there are still, you know, there's, there's still opportunities. There's, there's still a lot of resistance to using prescribed fire in areas. And so prescribed fire training exchanges, these kinds of events um, are important for bringing people together um, who may not always work together on projects and to help them um, put fire on the ground um, collaboratively. And, and it's a real thing and overcoming um all sorts of obstacles, including, you know, everything from paperwork and MOUs to just, you know, working with different organizations and cultures and personalities that you might not always be accustomed to working with. Hopefully the, the, the ground that um, we helped burn and they continue to do more fire on uh, won't be tested um, by the fires that are coming up there. Um, Hermit's Peak, Calf Canyon fires, certainly hope not. Um, but it was a small, um, relatively small, I guess, project to, to try and, you know, get some good fire on the ground, um, and, and make a little bit of a difference in a small piece of property. Um, and you know, I, but my comments about the Black Lake, I don't want to diminish the, the effort or the value of the work that goes into burning that property because I know, I know from conversations with folks from around the country and from folks in New Mexico that prescribed fire in New Mexico is hard. The, the, the legal system um, to authorize prescribed fires, just it's, it's very different from what what it is in the Southeastern United States, the laws and the state, internal regulations that govern the, you know, the permit process, um, to be able to use fire, the permissions necessary to be able to use intentional prescribed fire. It's very different and it's very challenging. And New Mexico is in the process and folks like the Forest Stewards Guild are very engaged, uh, with New Mexico's state level efforts to improve their prescribed fire 
laws and rules and regulations to make prescribed fire a tool that can be more widely used. Um, so I, I know that that process is being worked on like, as we speak. And it's, I'm hopeful and encouraged that it's going to get better. And it's going to get easier. But I know like, it's hard to use prescribed fire in New Mexico. Like that's a, it's a, it's a real thing. Um, and it, the state doesn't make it easier. But I know that there are dedicated people in the state of New Mexico who are working hard to change that. And I know at one point recently, it's, it's been a couple of years um, since I've seen her name, but very recently, New Mexico had a state forester uh, who came from the Nature Conservancy. And I was really impressed with her. I saw her speak at a conference and, and she really came across as somebody who was dedicated uh, to improving um, the ecosystems and the forests in New Mexico and somebody who is dedicated to moving prescribed fire forward in the state. Um, like you said earlier, there's always so much more you don't know. And there's always so many more pieces to the puzzle. And like you said, people dedicated and working on the behind the scenes pieces. So yeah, it's good to acknowledge that and to share that change is inevitable. We're always moving in hopefully a forward direction. And there's people doing that work right now. So that's huge. Um, so thank you for sharing kind of the ba- the backstory to Black Lake and and all that work that different people are doing to, you know, aid in New Mexico moving towards more good fire. Do you have any takeaway or story or favorite place on the ranch uh, from your time as a, a staff member or a participant at Philmont? You know, you, um, you sent a list of like potential questions to kind of talk about for this. And it was a good, uh, it was, it was awesome actually, because you got me last night. I pulled out my old journal that I had, uh, when I worked as a ranger and, um, I hadn't looked at that thing since I don't even know when, you know, that was, that was, uh, 2002. So it was 20 years ago, which is kind of crazy to say. And so I was looking through that last night and I was like, whoa, there, there was stuff that, you know, I had forgotten, you know, you feel like you're going to remember everything, right? But yeah. you don't. Um, and so I wish I was a more persistent journaler throughout my life. I am not. But when I have taken the time to journal things, when I go back to read it, I'm like, oh man, that was so red. Uh, so one of the things that I had honestly forgotten about, I was a ranger um, and a Rayado ranger in 2002. And uh, my training crew was, uh, we were TC9 uh, was our group. And Alan Burdett was, um, was our ranger trainer. And Alan was super, he was super awesome. He was, uh, I haven't had contact with him in ages, so I hope he's doing well. But he was a little bit older. And as a ranger trainer, uh, he was, he embodied the servant leader that helped to nurture our crew. You know, we were all young 20 somethings and I think he, I don't know how old Alan was, but he seemed older and wiser than the rest of us. And he really helped to just pull us together as a tight knit crew and guide us in thoughtful ways that I think helped us to be better Rangers along the way. So we had a great group. One of our early outings as a crew we went into Taos probably to go to Outback Pizza and I don't know what else we did but we went to a thrift store and we found a nine iron uh, and it we we nicknamed it the TC nine iron we were training crew nine and this golf club ended up being kind of like our mascot uh, and we took turns sticking this thing in our packs was we went went with crews all the rest of the summer and we would just like take turns like handing it off like oh you get it this time you get it this time and so i was looking back through my um, photo album from the summer we have pictures that, that that golf club uh like all over the camp like posing like tiger woods on top of baldy and on top of the tooth and uh and i was reading in my journal about taking that thing out and like we'd be somewhere with the crew and we would i'd pull out the the nine iron and we would just like go whack cow patties <laughs> out in the field or, or pine cones. <laughs> and like the, the kids in the crews would just be like lined up to like hit stuff <laughs> in the woods at Philmont <laughs> with, 
this random crazy uh, golf club. So I don't even know what happened to that thing, but that that ended up being like a big part of our summer. It was this silly golf club we picked up at a thrift store in Taos. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I was going to say like, where is it now? Who has it? And yeah. um, maybe someone will be listening to this uh, from your TC and they'll, they'll call you up and say like, I still have it. <laughs> oh, that, I mean, 20 years later, I hope they still don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> True, true. (laughs) Like, how many times have I moved? I do not want that golf club. Um, But yeah, it was pretty. We had a, it was a really good group. One story I was reading in my journal, I I had totally forgotten. I couldn't even believe it. I was reading it to my wife last night. I was like, you're never going to believe this. It was John, John Swaco, myself. And, uh, you know, I was trying to find a roster of our list. We had another guy in our crew. His name was, I think his name was Andrew, but we all called him Lance because he rode a bike like Lance Armstrong. And this was when like Lance Armstrong was like a thing uh, before he got in trouble. So we just called him Lance. And I was like, look through my whole journal. I was like, Lance, Lance, Lance. Like, what's his name? So s- somebody uh, will probably know what Lance's real name is. And Lance, if you listen, I'm, I'm sorry, dude. I don't remember your name. Um, <laughs> but Swayco, Lance, and I, uh, we came up with this plan to, it was on our days off towards the end of the summer, uh, to go up and camp up on the, the saddle of Bali. And so we, we drove Lance's car up to a turnaround. Um, and we start hiking. We had extra stoves, tons of water and tons of hot chocolate. And we had this big plan. And so we have our heavy packs and we're hiking up and it was in the evening and we're like, ah, it's, it's a long way up there. And like, we hear this rumbling fill vehicle come up the road and we look and lo and behold, it's Gene Schnell. And he's like, you guys want to ride? And we're like, yeah. Heck yeah. So like he lets us in, we're carrying the back of his, his suburban and uh, he gives us a ride up to Bali town. And we, we thank him and hop out and, and we hike up the hill and get up to the saddle about dusk. And I think looking at my journal, you know, we were talking about going up, trying to camp up on the top and we got up to about tree line and we we're like freezing our took us off. And we're like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to go back down the, down the trees. And so we set up in the tree line and in the morning, we had set our alarms. So we get up early and go see sunrise. We hike up to the top. We got up to the top, saw the sunrise, and and we took our stoves and a bunch of the water and all our, like our whole packs and everything up there, and uh, and we came up with this plan to to officially deem ourselves a um, Baldy Peak staff camp, and so we decided that we were the highest uh, staff camp on the property, and that as crews would come up. Uh, we were going to ask for their crew leader copy from the crew leader and sign it. And so, you know, cause that's what you did. And I don't, even, I don't, I haven't been in a while, so I don't remember. They still do the crew leader copy and they still require you to, the crew leader to carry their life. They called it. And so we, we went out there, we set up and uh, we made hot chocolate for, for crews and had like a whole ton of hot chocolate up there um, inside the little rock wall. And, um, had all the Gatorade and all the stuff we needed. So over the course of the day, we had like, before we had to go back down because of thunderstorms at about 1230, uh, we'd served five crews who had come to visit Baldy Peak Camp. And we'd signed their crew leader copies. And uh, we signed like Top of the World Ma, Baldy Peak Camp staff. And uh, we had one crew leader. We got up there and we're like, all right, have your life. And and uh, he said, you know, he didn't have it. And he's like, hold on, I'll be back in 15 minutes. And lo and behold, the, the poor kid, he didn't summit with his whole pack. He'd left it down at tree line. And so like this kid ran all the way back down to tree line to grab his crew leader copy, to run all the way back up so we could sign it. And we were just like, you're you kidding me. And uh, we signed away, you know, his, his, his life. And uh, I had completely forgotten about this, but, you know, we, we did, uh, we had a porch talk and had advisors coffee and all that kind of stuff up on top of, of all these, <laughs> these five crews that came to visit. Um, just John Swaco, Lance and I, and, uh, it was awesome. It was such a good crew to work with. So, and great people. And there's, you know, just like anybody else who spent a summer out there, like there's tons of stories. There's the stories that I, I can remember and the things that I've forgotten and the, the things that made it into the journal, but I wouldn't trade it that summer for anything. 
I love that story. I'm so glad you shared it. I'm so glad you pulled out your journal. Um, I'm a pretty avid journaler, but since having kids, it's like gone downhill a little bit. But um, yeah. yeah, when I do get the chance to to jot down a few things, it, it's, it's nice. And um, But it's definitely fun to go back and read the Philmont journals. Those are some of my f- most favorite. Is there anything else you want to share? Yeah, I would say, gosh, you know, Mary Stuvert, I had a chance to to meet her when I came out to be a visiting forester in 2014. That whole experience was amazing. Um, you know, when I got to camp, I know you interviewed uh, Chris Sawyer. You got to talk with him. And Chris is amazing. And his dad actually greeted me at base camp when I got there off the, off the bus from, up from Albuquerque. And uh, his dad's amazing, of course. So I got to meet his dad and he took me around camp um, and then uh, got to meet with Chris. And he took me around camp and then finally uh, get up into uh, hunting lodge and meet the wonderful staff that, that was up there uh, that summer. And actually, um, Trevor Lombardi uh, was on staff up there uh, that summer. And I'm pretty sure you've talked to him as well. And he's amazing. Sometime uh, within the first few days, uh, Mary came up and I got to, to meet with her and, and spend some time chatting with her. And she, she was, you know, I read a little bit about her and her you know, history with the, with, with Philmont and New Mexico uh, before I got there. And she's just such an amazing lady. She has such history with the property and depth of understanding of the place and the resources and the people of New Mexico and the ranch itself. Um, she's just so darn cool. Um, and, Every once in a while, I get to run into her um, at a fire conference, you know, even if it's just chatting for a few moments, like Mary Suber is a way cool lady. And the fact that she's really kind of pulled together and made the whole visiting forester program like out of scratch, that's not her only legacy at all. But like the fact that she's done that alone is, a, I feel like is an amazing uh, contribution to the ranch and and to all the scouts that end up uh, touched by the the information that and the, the pitches and the enthusiasm of the visiting foresters who come through every summer. Super cool lady, um, super cool folks. It's an incredible program, and I hope it you know only grows and um, continues to to do that important work. I would be I'd be remiss if I if I didn't mention um, my Rayado partner was Ben Horn. So Ben and I were like, we shared my little Sierra Designs clip flashlight through throughout Riado. Small tent, two guys squeezed in super close, but he was an awesome Riado partner to work with and, and really an amazing individual with a lot of energy and amazing um, just hiker for one. The guy could hike like crazy, but also a lot of passion for... Um, for the Riado program and for the, for Philmont. So he was, it was a, he was a really cool guy. Um, and, uh, this summer about it was, yeah, it was 10 years ago this summer. Um, and I know other people from Philmont knew Ben, uh, cause he came back, I believe another year to work on staff and was an avid, um, hiker and climber. But in 2012, uh, he was, killed in a, in a mountaineering accident in Peru. Um, and so I know a lot of folks um, from the Philmont community knew Ben and outside. Um, he went on to later, after Philmont, um, be in the Peace Corps in Kyrgyzstan, and then later was working on a graduate degree, uh, which he was really close to finishing his PhD um, that was later posthumously awarded. Um, but I feel like I would be remiss not to mention uh, what a, what a, cool Riado partner he was and what an amazing opportunity it was to 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 work with him and to know him um, while he was at Philmont. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um Philmont is a beautiful, beautiful place, a magical place. The landscape is incredible, of course, but you know, uh people can argue with me about this, but I think like anything else, it's really the people that that make the biggest impact. So thank you, David, today for being on the show, for taking the time, making the time to chat with me and talk about these, you know, complicated, diverse, impactful issues surrounding fire. 
yeah, I just hope the best for everyone out at Philmont. We're thinking about you guys and, you know, for the upcoming summer season and um, just keep doing all that great work that you guys are doing all the time because it doesn't stop that that machine of Philmont. We're closing this episode with a song by Will Kemple Taylor titled Unfolded. Will grew up in Cimarron and worked on Philmont staff in a variety of roles in the early 2000s, including CHQ Maintenance, PC Bobien, PC Poblano, and Bear Researcher. Will shares that, quote, This song is meant to share my experience of watching these fires happen from afar, as I now live in Iowa, but my mother is still in New Mexico. But also from the perspective of all the northern New Mexico people who are in the path of these fires and who have lost their hard-won land, homes, and history. It is also written with the Philmont staff, current and former, in mind. Those who love and cherish that place and see it as home in their hearts as well. I love Cimarron and Philmont. Northern New Mexico will always be my home. Will reminds us to consider donating to the Philmont Fire Recovery and Mitigation Fund, as well as the All Together New Mexico Fund and the American Red Cross Local Disaster Relief. For more music by Will Taylor, follow him on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I go if my hometown is lost and dear mother moves on if her fire and smoke they swallow it all and the cradle is gone where do I go if there's no place like home Where do I run if my life falls apart And I've burned all my bridges If the leaves and the trees can't remember their place And no roots are left living Where do I run? Where do I go if there's no place like home? That's my heart up there burning on the news All my plans, my history and my truth My foundation, my shelter and my roof And unless things change real soon You'll all be falling through Unless things change
Where will I rest at the end of my days If these hills cannot hold me If there's no space, no room for embrace From this land that has grown me Where will I rest? Where will I go if there's no place like home? That's my heart up there burning on the news All my plans, my history and my truth My foundation, my shelter and my roof And unless things change real soon It will all be falling through Unless things change Where do I go if my hometown is lost And dear mother moves on 